You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 126. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show rode his bike over 2,000 miles from Canada to Mexico along the Pacific coast, carrying a trailer with a life-sized rhino behind him. Matt Meyer is a South African safari guide who was inspired to take action to help protect declining rhino populations, and just this past week, he completed what he calls the Rhino Ride. So my name is Matt Meyer. Um, I'm a private safari guide based in um, South Africa, but I do safaris across Africa, and um, I'm a conservationist. I've grown up in the industry and in the uh, in the the line of the works of um, conservation, rhinos have become kind of a passion of mine um, from when I was much younger up until now, developing into something that I want to kind of dedicate most of my life to. Um, and then after this, I was I wasn't a cyclist before uh, the long ride to freedom, but now I think um, I am. <laughs> Two thousand and eight miles. Um, under the belt, and yeah, it's been an incredible experience. Tell me about this journey. I mean, what inspired you? I mean, first of all, tell folks what it is, you know, what it is that you did, um, but then, you know, why did you do that? What was the inspiration behind it? So back in, in October 2015, um, I was in San Diego with a good buddy of mine and, and the lead sponsor of, of Rhino Ride, and we were sitting down having lunch talking about rhinos um and and their plight at the moment and how they're being poached and decimated on a an alarming rate and there was at that same time there was a um there was a gentleman in south africa who was on a similar pilgrimage to walk a statue of a of white rhinoceros across the country of south africa and finished down in cape town and his journey was about a thousand miles and it took him about 45 or 48 days or so to complete. And it didn't really gain as much um, visibility or traction as, as I thought an, an effort and something as, as visually um, captivating as pulling a rhino a thousand miles across a country should have done. So we kind of, we kind of spoke about it and planned it and we wanted to do something here in the United States. Um, firstly, because I mean, it's obviously a very environmentally conscious and, um, eco-friendly, uh, part of the, the U S the Western U S and Oregon, Washington and, and California. And it evolved into a, a bicycle ride. Um, and it now then, uh, covered about 2000 miles, but most of the tourists that come that I take on safari and certainly that come to Africa for photographic safaris and ecotourism, they come from, from the United States. And so it's, uh, it's uh, a little bit closer to heart than, than uh, let's say, doing it in Europe or Australia or in Asia. And the dollar also goes a lot further in Africa than, than any of the local currencies. Um, 
and then it's also it's just a, I mean it's a great place to have a bike ride um, basically and so that from that um, the long ride to freedom evolved into uh, Rhino ride and like I said I finished on uh, Sunday this last Sunday the, the 18th of June and uh, Luna who um, was my travel companion who she's a life-size lifelike black rhinoceros statue weighing about 300 350 pounds and uh josh lally who is uh he was the backup driver and videographer and social media content generator uh the three of us completed that 2000 mile or 2008 mile journey which took about 64 or 63 days uh cycling on average 40 45 miles a day sometimes a lot more sometimes a lot less. Um, and to date we've raised just over or just under $125,000 with a, a final goal of $250,000 where all of the overhead and all of the running costs um, associated with the ride have been covered by our two lead and core sponsors, Upper and Heath Travel, which is based here in San Diego, uh, the the owner, uh, Chris Liebenberg, is a good friend of mine. He grew up in Namibia and moved over here just over 10 years ago, started the travel company, and he uh, he's a, a 1% company. So 1% of their annual turnover goes back to an organization or a fundraiser um, where Africa African um, conservation initiatives are the primary beneficiaries. And then Wilderness Safaris, which are Africa's largest um, safari operator. They operate in over 10 countries. I think they've got just shy of 40 destinations around Africa. And they um, they contributed the, the marketing and PR portion of it. And then we have a safari that we've put up for raffle as well for two weeks um, across southern Africa. And so with those two organizations having covered all of that and what they have brought um, and contributed to the ride, we can say that 100% of the proceeds of this go to the organizations we've selected. And so no one's making any money off of this. No, there are no overheads. All the overheads have been covered in advance. So that if you give a dollar, a dollar goes back to Africa. The, the three organizations that we selected in advance were all vetted by our nonprofit. So instead of starting our own nonprofit and getting 501c3 status, which is it's a, a nightmare of a, of a process and it takes time and it costs money, instead of doing that, we, um, we partnered with a great nonprofit in, um, in New York um, called Empowers Africa. And the three organizations that we selected – are all vetted by them. They're all known by them. And so it was just uh, a synergy from the start. We, uh, we have a great relationship with them and everything we raise goes back to those three. Um, the one in South Africa, which was the one that I selected, uh, is called Care for Wild Africa. And they are a Arano uh, orphanage sanctuary and rehabilitation center based in the northeastern parts of South Africa, close to the Kruger National Park. And they, uh, from, the, from the age of about six or seven years old, a female rhino uh, is either pregnant or with a calf uh, until, she, until she dies, um, which of natural causes is around sort of her late 30s, early 40s. 
Now, when they get poached, there's obviously a baby with them, uh, and these babies need to be uh, rescued, rehabilitated. Um, and then because they're gregarious, uh, they live in, in groups until uh, they're of mature age, they need to kind of be taught and learn how to be wild rhinos again. So it's a process of several years. I mean, the first 18 months, they're still nursing, uh, and then they release them periodically and, and stage by stage to be with wild rhinos and to learn how to be back in the wild, uh, the, the behavioral things that they would have uh, mirrored and gotten from um, from their mothers and been imprinted on from their mothers. So that is the one organization. Now, the second organization uh, is Save the Rhino Trust. They're based in Namibia, and that was Chris's choice, uh, being from Namibia himself. Uh, and they these guys uh, monitor and um, and protect the largest free-ranging or free-roaming uh, population of, of black rhinos left in Africa. The rhinos are essentially property and owned by the community. So these guys integrate and use um, communities and community members to protect the rhinos. But they're in like some of the harshest environments in Africa. I mean, the Namib Desert, which is just south of this area, is the oldest desert on earth. Uh, these guys are on foot. They go places where horses and um, uh, ATVs can't go. And so these guys, and they're out there 24-7 protecting these rhinos. And so that's kind of the anti-poaching and research um, portion of, of our fundraiser goes to them. And then the third and final um, beneficiary is Olpegeta, which is in uh, Kenya. They're home to the last three remaining northern white rhinos. Um, and they also have a, 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 a very successful black rhino population, which are also in constant need of anti-poaching, and um, they, they use the local community to do so. So there's a value seen by the locals on wildlife through tourism dollars, but they still need more help um, and funding to do that. Um, and then we, we had many conversations with those three organizations and with the people who run them as to how uh, best the funds would be used. And we've basically, because they're vetted, because they're well-known and they're, they're, um, they are uh, established organizations, instead of us sitting, I mean, I'm a, I'm a safari guide. Chris is a, uh, a safari guide and, and travel consultant. We're not career conservationists. We're not. We don't know the best use of that money, what they need. We're not there twenty four seven with them. So we decided to not essentially push it with it. We'll we'll give them the money, um, and they can utilize it in the best way that they that they deem fit um, for whatever funds we send back to them. So let them decide what is best for them. They might need. Um, um, they might need a, to upgrade their fence line. They might need formula for the baby rhinos. They might need a new anti-poaching dog. It might be for fuel for their helicopter. Whatever they need, they will decide and they'll prioritize with the funds. So that's a basic overview of of rhino ride. And um, like I said, we've got we've got that great safari that we've put up for raffle. That all proceeds of that go back as well and uh, we'll be raising funds until the end of October so the ride might be over 
but the project is still strong underway. Awesome, awesome. And I mean, it's it's such a unique way to to set up a campaign. And I mean, it's it's really fantastic that you were able to get you know those uh, uh, sponsorships uh, to cover the cost mm-hmm. of the ride itself, so that you can say like, yes, you were just donating money directly to these conservation groups um, and you are just sort of providing the vehicle of inspiration to get people thinking about rhinos and you know making that commitment to to you know financially support these organizations that are um, doing conservation you know that are doing rhino conservation the right way the visual of you on your bike hauling this trailer that has a life-size rhino is just so striking plus you you mentioned how much that model rhino weighs, which I'm sure is substantially less than a real rhino, but it's still a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Did did you have this idea in your head from the beginning? Like, this is what you needed to do to raise awareness to, like, haul a rhino behind your bike? There are a lot of extreme and and very notable um, athletes who have done things for for uh, worthy causes, um, over the last however long, I mean, guys running ultra marathons, women cycling, et cetera, et cetera, doing a lot of things. But to come over here, and if I was to just come over here and do a bike ride for 2,000 miles to raise funds for rhinos, everyone, and go and talk at various organizations along the way in schools and things, it, would, it, it, it wouldn't have been as impactful as what we've accomplished and what we've done. I mean, like you said, the sight of a, of a, a rhino – moving down the highway behind a man on a bicycle it's it i mean it it makes you look twice and it makes you think twice but it's more of a it's also more of a uh i think there are a lot of there are a lot of people that are, are fighting for various causes and because there's so many people are flooded with the protests and marches and this and that and so if if I was just to go on a bicycle, it would be more like that. And a person not from the U.S. doing that wouldn't have – I don't think would have uh, got as positive a response. But this was just a man on a bike pulling a rhino. And if you want to go and ask him a question, great. Um, and then engage people. So use Luna as that talking point to bring people in. And then once they once they show interest, uh, then continue to educate further. Um, and I mean, then that also enables us to take to go to, uh, schools and, and interact with the, the younger generation who essentially they're going to be the ones inheriting this earth after us. Um, and, and that was one of the, the motivations behind this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not married. I don't have any children. Um, I have uh, nieces and nephews and, and friends with, with children. And I just couldn't kind of sit back and let them take a let them inherit this earth without rhinos um and so that visual aspect of a rhino to a lot of people that don't know the size that you kind of have a picture in your head of what a rhino looks like but until you actually see it in the flesh and like whoa this animal is that big and it's being killed for this insignificant thing on its face what's the point in that and so that she was kind of the 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 attention grabber to draw people in to talk about a cause and for the most part, people have been really interested and 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 uh, positive and responsive. Some people they just they're like, okay, cool, like enjoy your ride, be safe, and and have fun. Um, but we're not really interested in 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 protecting and saving rhinos, and that's that's everyone's choice. Everyone has their their say, but the people that have been supportive 
um, have really enjoyed having that visual of, of an actual rhino. Is there like one interaction that you had or, or a few interactions that you had that like stand out particularly in your mind along the trip? I had a, I had a big mess giant dog jump out of a moving car up in Longview. Um, <laughs> it was, he, he just, his name was Giant. Um, and he just got really excited. And he was looking out the window and I think he, you know, he got, he got a little bit too excited and popped out the window. We were only, the, the vehicle was going about 20 miles an hour. So he wasn't, he wasn't badly injured. He just, he clipped a toenail and got a bit of, a bit of a, a road rash on his groin. But, um, I'd say that, yeah, just the, the response overall. I mean, the kids, uh, you see their faces light up when they see this rhino. Um, and they just go like a the, the, the younger kids go straight to, to Luna's nose and they pretend they're picking her nose. And it's quite <laughs> funny um, there. But it's, yeah, I'd say everything. It's, there, isn't one, there isn't one thing that stands out. Um, I mean, it was there were some days where... Like I've, I had, I had headwinds were impossible, um, or not impossible. We did them, but they were, they were tougher than what I thought they would be. I mean, I, um, up on in Northern California, just south of Avenue of the Giants, I was going downhill, and um, and I was the, the wind, the headwind actually stopped me. Um, I was freewheeling down a hill, and the headwind was blowing so strong that it stopped me moving. Like I, I stopped, and I was. Looking down a hill, and I was I was, I was static. Um, I had hail. I had hail in Portland a couple coming into Portland and going out of Portland. Um, and the whole of I think there was one day of sunshine in Washington State. Um, it rained every other day up there, um, and then down here, some of the days have been really hot. Um, they have been. I think the other day it was like mid eighties when I was in, in San Diego going up Torrey Pines, which is a legendary hill, uh, just before you get into La Jolla. And a lot of people in advance, they asked me like, do you know what you're getting into? And I'm like, yeah, well, we've done some bigger hills, but the heat was just unbearable that day. And I, I started getting dizzy towards the top and, I, uh, I had to get off the bike and push instead of pedaling. Um, so some some of those um, the 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 sort of uncontrollable aspects of the ride were the things that have stuck out the most the difficulties, um, but the response has been great. It really has been positive. It sounds clear to me that you you feel this connection with with the rhino, right? With with this species of animal. I guess I'm wondering, like, if if there are any like particular experiences or any like interactions you've had with rhinos that like really stand out. I mean, was there like uh, a, a, a moment or something happens like out on a safari that sort of made you realize that like, wow, I have to like take some type of some form of action to prevent this animal from going extinct. It's a. I mean, it's a, it's a question that I've I've been asked multiple times um but there isn't one there isn't one moment that's kind of um that kind of stands out as as the the reason for it but more an amalgamation of of moments over my life um but maybe the 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 final nail in the coffin was um when i first saw uh, a rhino that had been poached in the aftermath of that and just this carcass lying there um, with no half of its face gone. 
Uh, and I mean, you can see those videos that have been put up on on YouTube and 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 on various um, conservation organisations platforms. And just that visual of a rhino kind of staggering around uh, with half of its face missing and still breathing and suffering and just that excruciating amount of pain. I mean, these guys are, it is a multi, multi billion dollar um, underground network of and black market where horn and ivory are traded. Uh, but the guys that are actually doing the poaching for the most part are rural, uneducated villagemen who often have uh, handmade firearms and, very basic instruments that they do it with. So, I mean, they they shoot a rhino, and it doesn't matter if it's dead or not. They one shot just enough so that it, it's incapacitated and it can't move, and then they go up to it with with whatever they have to to sever the horn off. And I mean, the animal goes through. If it's lucky, it dies straight away. Um, but some of those animals are found four or five days later with half of their skull gone. Um, and they're still moving around and staggering around. So just witnessing a, a rhino after it had been poached was was one of the last um, the last things. And that was several years ago. And I just haven't been able to. I mean, I've been donating to several organisations through my guiding um, income um, for many years, but I, ha- I was never able to kind of pinpoint one that. I thought I was making an impact with or found a, a project that I could sink my teeth into and actually do. And I mean, this we've been planning this for 18 months. I mean, I've been I've been in the state since February, um, so I, I haven't. I, when I get home, that's five months of no income for me. Um, so it took a while to plan something that that had as the the biggest footprint we could acquire or that we could get over the shortest amount of time possible. Um, but I've just, rhinos have given me such joy and such, um, pleasure in the wild to share them with my clients and friends over the years that they were, they weren't all that I felt I needed to get something to for that, that joy and, and for what they've, what they've given me. Um, I mean, a baby rhino hopping around and bouncing around and they, they like almost, I don't know what you would call it, like a pirouette, like a, a ballerina does have you seen a baby if you've seen a baby goat hopping around uh that's kind of what rhinos do like a little baby like a three four month old 500 pound baby rhino doing that around its mother chasing birds and and then whining for milk when its mom won't give it milk it's just those things um and then you see a big bull rhino having an interaction with another big bull rhino i mean they are freight trains with horns on their faces and they are immensely powerful beasts, but they can't protect themselves against man. And so yeah, I just came up with this idea. And like I said, this is a this is a first of what I hope to be many um, many things that I can do, uh, projects that I can work on um, for the rest of my life to ensure that rhinos and other animals, because I mean they're they're a keystone species. So it's like if you protect a rhino, you're protecting everything else that falls within its environment. So you're protecting lions and leopards and elephants and giraffe and all of the the sexy and beautiful creatures and the the ones that everyone knows about. But at the same time, you're then protecting all of the antelope and all of the the bird life and the the, the insect life that rely on those keystone species. So to protect a rhino, you're protecting a lot of other things. 
your profession necessitates the existence of this wildlife, right? And specifically, like, this megafauna, these megafauna species, these large animals. Is this something that, like, folks within that specific niche of the tourism industry are, are doing about? I mean, it, mu- it must be a concern. The issue, I think, at the moment is that a lot of these uh, animals fall within the um, the reserves and the boundaries of, of government-run organizations and government-run parks. And because of that, there's a lot of um, bribery and corruption. I mean, the, if, if they wanted to end poaching, the presidents of the, the countries that these animals are being poached so extensively would have been able to sort it out. Uh, if you take South Africa, for example, our president has spent, I don't know how many months in, in court on bribery and corruption charges and the wealth that he's accumulated on the minimal um, presidential salary that he gets. I mean, it, 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 you, you can't look at it and logically see that it's not um, corruption taking place. Now, if you if used those funds correctly, you wouldn't have organizations uh, that don't have money uh, to protect these animals, to protect these rhinos and the elephants and, like you said, and the megafauna. So I think that's the – we. I mean, the three. if you look at the three organizations we, we're supporting, they're all private. They're all small. Um, they're all very well run. And so the whatever money we can send back will have a big enough impact rather than – throwing a quarter of a million dollars at, let's say, the Kruger National Park, where that's not going to – yes, that is where the, where the main poaching happens with rhinos in South Africa at the moment. But it's going to be ill-used if you send it to, to that, or at least for the most part. Um, so I think, I think a, lot of, a lot of guides are starting to do more. Um, but I, it, it's one of those things that it's – Everyone's going to have to do, uh, going to have to kind of pick up the pace a bit. I mean, we're sitting now at probably a year or two on either side of a decade until we could potentially lose rhinos in the wild. Um, and then the only place you'll see them are zoos and really, really high security private reserves. So, I mean, the tipping point where rhino births uh, was. Um, overcome by uh, rhino deaths due to poaching was three or four years ago. I guess I'm sort of, you know, thinking about this, like from the perspective of someone who lives here in the U.S., right? If there's some industry that brings in a lot of of money in, in the form of tourism and there's a threat to that industry um, and to the money, this stream of revenue that's coming in, then, you know, often the approach that I think like industry groups here in the U.S. would have would be to like hire lobbyists and pay people to constantly be petitioning the government and expressing the, you know, those interests. And right, because there's money behind it, it's like there's funding behind this effort to like put pressure on these governmental systems. And like maybe even if there is like high level corruption in a lot of these government systems, then at least, you know, like there's money behind that effort as well, because there are a lot of people that, that, you know, travel to Africa specifically to see wildlife and specifically to see rhinos. I mean, are there like industry conferences like uh, uh, where, where these, these issues are discussed? The big one happens every second year. It actually happened in South Africa uh, last year, last September, the meeting of CITES. And that's, I mean, those are governments and all they're doing is talking about 
this kind of thing. Um, but I mean, the South African government recently opened the ban uh, of rhino horn. And so as we stand right now, South Africa is the only country on earth, but you can legally trade in rhino horn in South Africa. You can go and with the permit purchase a rhino horn and with that same permit, take it out of the country. As soon as you take it out of the boundaries of South Africa, it's not for sale anymore. But you can go in, you can come into South Africa and you can buy it for, and since then, I mean, that happened about maybe just over two months ago. We've just seen an, a, a spike in poaching. I mean, I'm from KwaZulu-Natal, which is just south and, um, and east of the Kruger National Park. It's the, the most coastal eastern province of South Africa. And I think that it, it's gone over 100, but the stat about two weeks ago was 100 rhinos poached in that one province this year to date, which is the worst in a century. It's the worst we've ever had. And that's that's one province. Um, so when you can't when you can't even get governments to agree, I mean, you look at the, the the Chinese government have agreed to to put a ban on ivory by the end of 2017. The Vietnamese government openly have said we don't want rhino horn in our country. We don't want it. We don't get get rid of it. Take it. Um, but they can't agree. No one can agree on the same thing. So it's, I mean. Yeah, like I said, CITES happens every second year, and they still can't figure it out. Just to clarify here, you're saying that the just two months ago, South Africa opened up the market for rhino horn and made it legal to trade in, in, in rhino horn? Just two months ago? In, in South, South Africa, Africa, yeah. They, 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 they passed the It was renegotiated towards last year, and... Um, and they uh, they threw it out of court. They threw it. They said no, it's not going to happen. And then uh, yeah, he said about just I think it was just over two months ago. They thought about it again. They said no, let's try. It. Let's give it a try. See what happens. Um, so I mean, you you're, you're putting a value on something now in a, in a market that legally it had no value. It favors the private sector where you can you can dehorn your entire population of rhino five or ten individuals and sell that to use that money to protect them. But I mean, what was it just the other day, there was a, a rhino in a, in a park that they dehorned um, this particular rhino and it got into a, a, a fight at a waterhole with the hippo and the hippo killed the rhino because the rhino had no way to defend itself. Right. I've been following this issue to a certain extent and I've seen, you know, the, these reports of people who are just dehorning their entire population, dehorning them in such a way that the animal is not killed. Essentially, what you're saying is that that is the motivating factor behind the South African government uh, uh, opening up the market once again, is that it sort of pro provides this, it, it sort of allows people to dehorn these private herds and then sell them off and then theoretically use the money for conservation. That's kind of the reasoning behind it. Well, that, that's the reasoning behind it, but the, the motivation behind it, uh, surely stems to corruption right um, right a cabinet minister doesn't change their mind overnight like complete reversal of a, of a policy that's been in place for almost 40 years without any without any financial motivation um in my opinion it's um i mean none of that will ever be proved but it's it certainly favors the, like I said, it favors the, the private sector that have small populations that do need the money. They have no government subsidize, uh, subsidization for their protection of, of rhinos. So 
I, I can see where it's justifiable, but it, it's, I mean, you're condemning a species by opening it up like that, where you can't, you, if you can protect every single rhino within the boundaries of South Africa by legalizing the trim horn, great. But if you can't, you're saving a very small amount. Um, but I think it, it should go beyond that. I mean, the only, the only thing that needs a rhino's horn is a rhino. Otherwise, they wouldn't have them. It's to try and get that message across. And the, the biggest consumer and mover and buyer of rhino horn is um, the eastern market through China, Vietnam. And we don't have enough rhinos for the time that it would take to educate that population as to why they should and shouldn't use rhino horn or, or do anything with it. I mean, a lot of them don't know that the, the, the rhino has to die for them to – or the rhino is dying. It doesn't have to die. But that the rhino is dying for them to get that horn. Uh, a lot of them don't know that an elephant has to die to get the ivory. So there are, I mean, there's some great organizations working on educating the East. Uh, when we were going through San Francisco, we met with the folks at Wild Aid, and that is, I mean, they've got a team of, I think, nine, ten people in San Francisco just to run their logistics and base of operation. But 90% of their effort and initiative is based in the East, is based in China. Uh, and they are trying to educate, but you're dealing with a population of over a billion people. Uh, and if we only have 25,000, just shy of 30,000 black and white rhino cumulatively in Africa, do we have enough rhinos to give us enough time to educate 1.2, 1.3 billion people? No, we don't. So that's why we decided to put our efforts all into protecting them, protecting the ones that we have. And through doing so, through educating people here, in the States and whoever it reaches on this uh, worldwide um, as to, to what is happening to the animals there because it's not a, it's a global problem. The, the plight of the rhino is a global issue. It's not one person, one country, one man's issue. Um, and so we need a global solution. This was the, the, the best um, the way that we could see to do that and to reach the most people and to raise the most funds. There are a lot of conservation issues out there now that I think fall into this category of there is no one thing that you can do that's going to fix the problem, right? You have to do lots of different things. You have to attack these problems from a variety of different angles. And yeah, like you said, it's a global problem. So you just completed your rhino ride just a few days ago. Uh, I mean, what, what comes next? I, <laughs> I think I'm home for 30 hours before I get on another plane to, uh, to run a safari. I've got, I've got a, I mean, it's, it, I've got about a week here to wrap things up. Uh, we have one final event in Irvine this weekend at 28 restaurants in Irvine, um, on Saturday night for anyone in the, the sort of Orange County area, or even in LA, um, to come there to meet Luna, to meet myself to meet the team behind me that allowed this to happen. And then uh, next week I head up to Colorado and then I'll be in Texas for a couple of days after that. And then I head home on the 6th of July. I get home on the 8th and I'm on a plane to Livingston and Zambia on the 10th. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I've got maybe six or seven safaris lined up for the end of this year to pay the bills so that I can, I can do something like this perhaps next year or the year after. Um, so, yeah, I, I head straight back into things. And so, I mean, do you have plans to, to do additional campaigns like this? Or are you and Luna going to ride across, uh, you know, which continent are you going to pick next? 
<laughs> well, I think I think the hope is to to put to put Luna up for sale to raise a little bit more money, um, and and if we do decide to to do another ride. We will then either look for another representation of rhinos, or perhaps do something for another species that's in need. Um, personally, I'd like to do something for pangolins because a life-size pangolin is easier to pull behind a bicycle than an elephant, let's say. Um, but we'll see what we let's see what we all come up with. But no, this is definitely um, my. I think I would like to, and in my future lies a lot more work. Um, for for the animals that like I said I have I've been able to have such joy viewing them and spending time with them in the wild um I can never give enough back to them um but I'm I'm certainly going to try well thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast today and maybe just uh before you go you can just let folks know where to go to find out more about uh the rhino ride um and maybe about this event uh that's coming up in Irvine Yes, so um, we've our, our website is rhinoride.org. Um, we've got a brief explanation of what we've just discussed up there. Uh, if anyone missed it, uh, there's also the, the the place to donate there, uh, and all 100% of the the proceeds of this go back to those three organisations. And then we also have more information on our, our safari that we have up for raffle. Two weeks um, on safari in Zambia, Botswana, and South Africa uh, to the value of about, I think it's about $20,000 for two people uh, put up by Wilderness Safaris. And it's a, it really is a spectacular itinerary to, to go and see these animals in the wild and then to experience a safari. Um, and then uh, there are there is an events page there as well as on our Facebook page, Rana Ride 2017. Um, and this weekend we'll be meeting on um, the 24th uh, on Saturday uh, at the uh, 28 restaurant, which is in Irvine, and uh, we'll have a couple of interesting and great uh, trips that we will have on raffle there, as well as uh, an auction for safari, I believe, and uh, to meet Luna. Uh, you get to take, take a photograph with Luna. Well, thanks again for coming on the show and, and sharing this really awesome story about this journey that you undertook. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to chat to you. All right. That was our conversation with Matt Meyer, conservationist, adventure, and safari guide. I've already got the wheels turning in my head about a vaquita ride. I'm not sure if it would be quite as dramatic as the rhino ride since the vaquita is quite small in comparison but let us know if you'd like to see us do something similar for the vaquita or for any other species for that matter. You can leave us a comment on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC126. You'll also find all of those links that Matt shared with us on that page. You've got to have a look just to get the visual of Matt hauling Luna the Rhino down the highway on his bike. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just about any podcatcher out there. You can also leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. This really helps new people find the show and is always greatly appreciated. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.